Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem features Judy Klitzner on Parashat Yitro. Be sure to follow us on Spotify or visit us at elmod.pardes.org. And now, here is Judy Klitzner. Although I generally like to focus in on one or two characters in the parasha, today's shiur is going to be focused on and dedicated to some characters that are not in the parasha. Uh, And if we look at source number one on your page, we can't help but notice that something is terribly wrong here. Vayered Moshe min ha'har el ha'am, vayikadesh et ha'am, vayichabsu simlotam, vayomer el ha'am, heyun nechonim lishloshet yamim, al tigshu el isha. Moshe came down from the mountain to the people and warned the people to stay pure, and they washed their clothes. And now here it comes. And he said to the people, to the Am, be ready for the third day, do not go near a woman. The most eloquent and I think the most painful expression of the problem in this verse was put forth by the feminist scholar Judith Plasco in her book, Standing Again at Sinai. That was in 1990. Um, And here, if you look at source number two on your page, here is Plasco. There is perhaps no verse in the Torah more disturbing to the feminist than Moses' warning to his people in Exodus 19.15. Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. For here, at the very moment that the Jewish people stand on Mount Sinai, ready to enter into the covenant, Moses addresses the community only as men. At the central moment of Jewish history, women are invisible. This verse sets forth a pattern recapitulated again and again in Jewish sources. On the one hand, of course we were there. On the other, how is it then that this text couldn't imply that we were not there? So although Plasco's words are harsh, they're piercing, she's actually a bit optimistic in her certainty that despite the text's exclusionary language, she still concludes, of course we were there, right? At both at Sinai and throughout Jewish history. It's just that we were, well, invisible, not seen, not noticed, not taken into consideration. Um, and I would like, in the time that we have together, to explore both aspects of Plasco's comments. First, her extreme discomfort with the exclusionary wording of the text. And with this, her certainty that despite this exclusionary type of language, women were in fact always there. So in my humble effort to address these huge questions, all in a very brief time frame, I I want to offer a three-pronged plan. Uh, First of all, I make no claims to solve the problem that Plasco raises, but I hope that my three approaches will prove useful in thinking about these issues in more complex ways, and that that maybe these will encourage others to think more broadly and more creatively uh, than before on, on these matters. So moving to approach number one, if you look at source three on your page, um, we consult the uh, feminist, the Unitarian feminist Bible scholar Phyllis Tribble. And here's what Tribble writes. The women's movement errs when it dismisses the Bible as inconsequential or condemns it as enslaving. In In rejecting scripture, women ironically accept male chauvinistic interpretations and thereby capitulate to the very view they are protesting. But there is another way to reread, not rewrite, the Bible without the blinders. The hermeneutical challenge is to translate biblical faith without sexism. Simply put, what she's telling us is that we must read the text again, 
carefully and without preconceptions. In Tribble's view, um, both modern feminist readers and traditional interpreters are guilty of approaching the text with an oversimplified set of assumptions and conclusions. Feminist readers often assume the worst from what they consider to be an irredeemably sexist text. And as a result, they dismiss such texts completely. Um, and from the other end, I would say traditional interpreters tend to offer apologetics for the text, or worse, they try to justify um, some anti-women sentiments that are, that, are in, that are actually in the verses. Um, and what Tribble is urging us to do is to go back to the text without any of these preconceptions and just reread it, examine it closely. And when we do, we might be surprised to find that the text as written is not as, as problematic as we might have thought. Um, and she demonstrates this rereading process. And I, as an example, I, I put, uh, I've, uh, I've posted for you on, in source number four. Um, here we have one of, arguably one of the most, most troubling verses in the Bible, a verse that seems to be a biblical mandate for women to be subservient to their husbands for all of eternity. Um, in the Garden of Eden, God turns to the woman after she and her husband have eaten from the forbidden fruit. Um, and El Haisha Amar, God says to the woman, I'll read this in the English, I will make most severe your pangs in childbearing. In pain shall you bear children. Your desire will be to your husband, and he shall rule over you. In, in Hebrew, El Ishech Teshukatech Vuhu Yimshol Bach. And here um, on this verse, Tribble argues that we misread if we look at this verse. Um, simply as an endorsement of hierarchy. She, she claims that when we look at it more closely and when we view it, in, in the verse, in its broader context, we note that these terrible consequences that are meted out to the woman are actually not a support of hierarchy and subjugation, but a condemnation of those things. Uh, and in her view, and in the view of others, all relationships are broken following humanity's disobedience in the Garden of Eden, right? Which relationships between hum human beings and animals, right? With the woman and the serpent, between women and their offspring, where, where, she, where she's told her she will give birth in, in pain and suffering, between men and the earth, God says you will, you will get, get bread by the sweat of your brow, and yes, between men and women, where now hierarchy is introduced. But what Tribble warns is that w these consequences are not to be understood as prescriptive, this is the way it must be, but rather descriptive, right? They will certainly be true of most of human history, all of these things, but she claims these things are to be lamented, not embraced as God's will. Um, and implied in all of these pronouncements by God is a call uh, at attempted tikkun, people should try to fix it. Right, to get back to the ideal harmonious functioning that characterized God's initial creation, in which man and women were equal partners in filling the world and conquering it. And to support this view, let's look at the next source on your page, in which God tells the man that he will eat by the sweat of his brow. Um, right, it's right here on your page. Um, right, by the sweat of your brow shall you eat bread. Would any reasonable person argue that God is mandating physical labor for all men for all time? Um, we, 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 we need look no further than the book of Bereshit itself, in which the, the male uh, protagonists in this book are not farmers, but they're shepherds, right? And no one would accuse, for instance, our forefather Jacob of transgressing God's mandate to sweat over an unyielding earth, right? Just as no one today would reasonably accuse a man 
who makes his living through high tech um, and suggests that that man is violating a biblical injunction to sweat over the earth. Um, and so I think it, what Tribble is, 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 is presenting is, is the notion that it's equally unreasonable to suggest that women are duty bound to remain submissive and dependent, right? Um, in short, when we read, reread God's seemingly sexist pronouncement to, to women, we find something quite different from what we expected. We find words that describe the inequities that will plague humanity throughout most of its history, but by no means do these words endorse or prescribe the perpetuation of these inequities. Um, can we apply Tribble's method of careful rereading without preconceptions to better understand Moshe's words at Mount Sinai? Those difficult words do not go near a woman. Um, now, we recall that Moshe had said to the Am, in source number one, to the people, to the nation, do not go near a woman. And that statement seems to exclude women from the experience of revelation. But look what happens when we go back to the text and look at the verse more closely, this time within its context. Uh, and I would argue that when we reread it, we must compare Moshe's words to the initial instruction that was given to him by God. And this is in source number five. What did God actually say to him? Vayomer Hashem el Moshe lech el ha'am. God said to Moshe, go to the people, to the nation. Vekidashtem hayomu machar v'chibsusim lotam. Right? And, and then, I'll, I'll look at this in the English, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and warn them to stay pure today and tomorrow. Let them wash their clothes, and they should be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will descend before the eyes of all the people on Mount Sinai. Okay, in Hebrew, Ki bayom hashlishi yered Hashem chol ha'am al har Sinai. Here, <clears throat> this is God's initial instruction to Moshe, and here we note that God's language is quite different than the language we found in Moshe's instruction to the people. In fact, God tells Moshe that God is going to descend before the eyes of all the people. This is an inclusive statement. Conspicuously absent in God's instruction is any reference to staying away from women. It simply isn't there. Right? It seems that when God speaks of kol ha'am, all the people, God actually means all, men and women alike. So on second look, when we look again at Moshe's order to the people, the act of separating women from the Am, from the people, seems to be his own addition to God's orders. Now, I, admittedly, this too is disturbing that Moshe would have added this, but I think it's, a little, it's less disturbing in that it suggests a human rather than a divine formulation. Uh, so in, in this first approach to difficult texts, we carefully reread the difficult text, as, as Tribble urged us to do. To, we reread without the blinders. And here, um, as in many other cases, we can take some of the sting out of the text. But let's face it, there remain many verses that simply cannot be redeemed by this method, no matter how many times we read them. And so I offer approach number two. Um, and here our example is going to come from our our, our parasha, Parashat Yitro. This is in source number six. In the second of the Ten Commandments, um, God says, Lo Elohim acherim al panai. You shall not have any other gods before me. Uh, and many commentators are troubled by the language um, of this commandment, which seems to acknowledge the existence of other gods, but just forbids people from worshiping them. And here, if you look on your page, Ibn Ezra comments, the text speaks in line with the thoughts of those who worship them. 
right? God's words are addressed to those people who believe that idols are real and have real power. And as a tactic to get their attention, God goes so far as to speak to these idolaters in the language that they can understand. It's, it's as if God is saying, okay, have it your way. There are other gods, but I'm commanding you not to worship them. I, I find this to be an intriguing method of approaching difficult texts, where we can read them as though they have shifted their perspective from an objective narration to the subjective vantage point of a character in the story. Uh, and here I want to offer just a couple other examples of this type of reading. If you look at source number seven on your page, um, here is the story of um, Yaakov marrying um, two sisters uh, after Lavan has switched. He thinks he's marrying Rachel, but instead he marries Leah after being deceived by his father-in-law. And remarkably, this text says, the next morning, Morning came, and behold, she was Leah. Now, certainly, from an objective, an objective standpoint, she was Leah all night. But the wording of this verse puts us inside of the shocked perspective of Yaakov, right, as remarkable as that, as that is, as he discovers Leah's identity. To him, she was Leah only in the morning. Um, and still staying with Leah, if you look just below this in the next source, um, we're told that um, Jacob cohabited with Rachel also. This is after he marries the right sister, the one that he intended to marry. And he loved Rachel more than Leah. And note here, right, the text, that is the objective um, pre presentation. He loved Rachel more. But in Leah's own mind, we're told, when she has a child, she has a child, God has heard that I am hated. Um, how can she say this when the text itself told us that she simply loved less? How can she say, I am hated? And I would argue that here again, we have shifted to the perspective of a character in the story, in this case, Leah, to her, and I would imagine to many of us, that the, the, the feeling, the experience of being less loved feels like nothing less than being hated, right? We've shifted into her perspective. So let's apply this method of reading the text as though they contain a shift in a perspective to our problematic verse, to, to one, another problematic verse that excludes women. Um, and here again from this week's parasha, from the Ten Commandments, in commandment number 10, and this is not on your page, um, God instructs the nation, do not covet, right? Lo tachmod, do not covet your neighbor's wife or your neighbor, neighbor's anything else. And here, as in Moshe's instruction not to go near a woman, the text language seems to assume that the real nation is comprised of men only, right? Don't covet your neighbor's wife, it says, assuming that the people addressed by, um, in the commandments are men. But if we apply Ibn Ezra's method to this verse, we might read the verse as though it is written to address the perspective of the men, who at this time and throughout most of human history live in a patriarchal society. Right? From their perspective, right, men are considered the primary, if not the default, members of the nation, and it was assumed that they would best understand the laws if they were delivered in line with this perspective. But, but what are we supposed to do with all that today when we read these verses that are skewed toward a patriarchal perspective, which is no longer relevant? Um, and I would suggest that in our readings, we have to translate, at least in our own minds, such statements into more inclusive language. So although the verse might say, don't covet your neighbor's wife, with our modern lens, we can understand its true intent, which is that men 
and women alike, uh, when they are in committed relationships, must refrain from coveting one another's spouses. In short, despite the male language in the verse and despite the male lens that that represents, we know that the deepest intent is to include everyone. As Plasco assured her, us, all of us, including her female readers, even if we're not to be found directly in the line, lines of the text, as she says, of course we were there. Now, you may recall that I said I had three approaches to offer in response to what I like to call the Plasco challenge. Um, so here, here's the third, and that is to read the Bible's difficult passages um, as, as engaging in a kind of vibrant conversation with other biblical passages. The Bible is a remarkably dynamic book. Its stories, um, one story can borrow the language and the themes of another story, sometimes in order to reinforce and interpret that other story, and sometimes in what I call in, in my book um, the Bible's subversive sequels, one story will play off of another in order to question its assumptions and even to overturn its conclusions, right? And in this elaborate internal conversation, um, what, we, what, we, what we call from this is an ongoing biblical re-examination and sometimes even revision of some of its own basic messages. So to get back to source number three and these disturbing words that God says to the woman in the Garden of Eden, El Ishech Teshukatech Vuhuyim Sholbach, to your husband is your desire and he shall rule over you. Well, I think that this very, very troubling verse is, is we can look at it as engaging in a subversive dialogue with another text, uh, which centers on another, on another garden, a, a garden of a very different sort. And here I call your attention to the, to the last source, source number nine. Um, in this garden, unlike, and this is the book of Shir Hashirim, the Song of Songs, unlike the ending of the Garden of Eden story in which all relationships are broken at the end of the story, the garden in Shir Hashirim is a garden of mutuality, it's a garden of harmony, both within the animal world and between men and women. In this garden, the love between women and men has no hierarchy in it. Um, and to be specific, if we look on our page, um, the woman says, Dodi lo, Dodi li va'ani lo. My beloved is to me and I am to him. He is mine and I am his. Right? She's saying to her beloved, we belong to each other mutually and equally. And beyond this, and I think significantly, she says, Ani le dodi ve'alai tishukato. I am beloved, my beloved's, and his desire is for me, upon me. Right? And I think this is nothing less than a radical rewriting of the verse in Bereshit, El ishech tishukatech v'hu yimshol bach. In this new garden, passion, right, tishuka, is no longer one directional from the woman to the man. It isn't something to be used as, as, as a, as a, as a uh, vehicle toward, toward hierarchy, right, to, to, to be used for man's control over woman but it is entirely in the context entirely of mutuality and reciprocity. And maybe even more significantly, um, and maybe the, the garden's boldest challenge to the verses, all the verses that exclude women or ignore women, in this garden, man calls out directly to the woman. She is a fully present subject to be spoken to. Um, and in fact, throughout Shir Hashirim, woman's voice alternates with that of the man. Um, 
Even more remarkably, Shir Hashirim ends on this resounding note. This is the last source on your page. Hayoshevet baganim chaverim makshivim lekolech hashmi'ini. Oh, you who dwell in gardens, a lover is listening. Let me hear your voice. Unlike the many verses in which women are overlooked or excluded, in this garden, everyone is ready to listen, to hear the woman's perspective spoken from her own voice, right? All she has to do is speak up and make her, make her voice heard. Um, so in this third approach, when we read difficult texts in conversation with other texts, often we find that although the disturbing passages remain on the biblical record, so do passages that challenge those texts, that revisit them, and sometimes even radically overturn their conclusions. Uh, and I think that this dynamic indicates that the Bible's positions are always open to review and to, and to keeping an eye out for forward motion. So, in this very quick presentation of these three approaches, um, I've tried to, to well, present some, some food for thought to meet the Plasco challenge. Um, but I, I would say that maybe more important than any of these attempts at resolution is, is really the importance of the question itself. There are many difficult exclusionary passages in all of our holy texts, in, in the Bible, in the Talmud, in Halakha throughout the ages and up until this day. Plasco calls upon us, women and men alike, to approach our texts, all of them, with the utmost seriousness. And although they're difficult, what she's telling us is we dare not ignore them and we dare not apologize for them. We must face them squarely and agonize over them, grapple with them. Um, this challenge, I believe, is to all of us, lay readers and leaders, students, teachers, to never simply learn or teach these texts without posing the hard questions and without doing our best to seek honest answers. Because these texts matter, and because, as Plasco asserts, and we know this to be true, of course we were there. And of course we have been there ever since. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts today. You can also subscribe to our other podcast channels by visiting us on Spotify or online at elmod.pardes.org. Tune in next week to listen to Rabbi Leon Morris as he discusses Parashat Mishpatim. Thanks for listening.